Amen. Well, it's a great um, joy to be back together again. It was uh, a little bit of a mental break last week. I was thankful for Brother Dean coming to sharing the word with you guys. Appreciate Will leading in music as well. It was kind of good to to just take a, a Sunday to kind of reset my my mind, and um, I'm overjoyed and, and glad and thankful to be back together with the people of the Lord. If you have a Bible, open with me to the Old Testament prophecy of Nahum. Again, it's that little short prophecy towards the end of the Old Testament between Micah and Habakkuk. We'll be looking this morning at Nahum chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. The title of the message is Conquerors in Christ. And we're going to see this picture of how when you consider redemption in light of these Old Testament narratives, you see this conquering victory that we as saints have in and through Christ. Um, one commentary notes, and I think accurately so, that there's no direct messianic references in Nahum. And that's interesting because it's a, a prophecy, it's a book of scripture, and yet there are no direct references to Christ. And while that is certainly true, I think what we'll see today is that we can see these these pictures of Christ, these things that point us to the redemptive work of Christ. And so, while there's not necessarily a, a type or foreshadowing of Christ in, in a man or, or a person, what we see is this picture that shows us what Christ will accomplish for his people, what Christ has accomplished for his people. In our text today, the Lord will rebuke and he will promise destruction to the wicked, while he also promises freedom and victory to those who are his. Freedom and victory from, from enslaving oppressors to the people of Judah. And, and we know that that is a picture of our freedom from the yoke of sin, the slavery of the law being entrapped by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And so this picture should point us to our eternal victory over sin. As we see this, this telling of, the, of an Old Testament narrative, it should show us and remind us and give us hope of the coming victory that we have in Christ. So let's look to our text, let's read God's word together, and then we will ask the Lord to bless our time studying his word. If you will, please stand with me as we read Holy Scripture, Nahum chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 15. This is holy and inerrant and inspired scripture, the very words of God. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol 
an image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you join me now and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our God, you are in the heavens. You reign supremely. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There are none who are like you. There are none to whom you can be compared. Great and majestic are your ways. Great and majestic is your presence. Great and majestic is your power, O God. You are the sovereign ruler who brings to pass all that you will. Nothing, Lord, that happens comes to pass without first passing through your sovereign hand. What comfort it is to rest in the sovereignty of an almighty God. What comfort it is, Lord, to know that you are good and faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. Your care for your people is never-ending. We lean and we trust upon your promise that says you work all things together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, we know that sometimes in our lives, as was the case in the days of Nahum and the people of Judah, sometimes our good is not always pleasant. It's not always easy. But Lord, you are always good. Lord, as we come to look to your word, I pray that your goodness would be ever on our minds. Pray that your redemptive work in and through Christ would be clear and present in our hearts and our minds. Pray that we would understand and realize and exult in the fact that you reign supremely. Lord, I pray that you would help our minds to comprehend what is the height and depth and the length and the breadth of your love which surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Lord, as we look to your word, we ask that you would give us the all-sufficient help of your Holy Spirit. For our hearts and our minds are weak and feeble and frail. Sometimes the difficulties of life can 
feel like they overwhelm us and, and take up so much of our mind that it's hard to, to focus in on this time as we look to your word for truth and instruction and encouragement and correction. Lord, that's why we lean upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, even in our weakness, you're able to display your great strength, especially in our weakness. You're able to display your great strength. Lord, while our hearts at times can be so heavy, we lean upon your truth. Your word is an anchor. Your word shows us the great anchor of Christ who has entered into the veil, who has entered into the holy of holies and ever lives to plead and intercede for us. Lord, it's an unshakable hope. the mountains quake around us, when the earth below gives way, we have a hope that remains, and it is Christ, and Christ alone. Lord, I thank you for the shelter and the refuge of the Savior. Thank you, Lord, that we can look to the future with hope. Thank you for the commands of your word to rejoice and to worship and to give our lives as a sacrifice to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to each of those ends. Pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are eagerly ready to receive and apply the truth. Pray that you would write your word upon our hearts. Stamp eternity before our eyes. Help us to forsake sin, to live unto righteousness, to live as those who are truly alive in Christ. Lord, help us now be glorified through the rest of our time of worship today. Lord, to you belongs all glory and power and dominion forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So you may recall from last time, a couple weeks ago, we we ended in verses 7 and 8 of Nahum chapter 1, and we see this great picture. The The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The sheltering refuge of Christ. The Lord, through Nahum, then reveals that it is with an overwhelming flood that he will make a complete end of the city of Nineveh. He is writing a letter foretelling the destruction of this 
wicked city. History tells us he did exactly as the text says in Nahum 2, verse 6. It says, the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. The Lord said he would make a complete end of the sight of this city. And if we were to look over the course of history, we would see that Nineveh disappeared off the face of the earth for all intents and purposes around 612 B.C. And it was not until the 1800s that this site was rediscovered. Some 2,400 years, the Lord wiped the city off of the face of the earth. This is the destruction of God against wickedness. And from there, we come to verses 9 through 15, where the Lord continues to explain how and why he will pour out his wrath upon Nineveh and the Assyrians. And specifically, I think we see some pointers to to the king of Assyria in these days and how he was a wicked man who rose up against the Lord and against the people of God, and the Lord will not stand for that. He shows how he will cause his people to prosper. He will allow his people to become conquerors, and that points to our ultimate conquering victory in Christ. So what's the aim of this text? It's a warning to Nineveh, the aim is twofold. It's a warning to Nineveh. It's a warning to sinners, but it's also a hopeful promise to Judah. It's a hopeful promise to the people of God. It's a hopeful promise to the saints today as it is a reminder of our great hope that the Lord will strip away the bonds of slavery to sin, that We will look to the mountains and see the good news of the one who declares peace that God reigns and Christ saves. That is the aim of the text, to paint that picture. One day, dear friends, we will be delivered from the oppression of sin. We get a foretaste of that today as we live as those alive in Christ. But in glory, that freedom will be fully realized. Dear friends, we look to and we long for that day. When you read about the plans and the schemes of evil men, verse 9 begins, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. You can't help but think about Joseph in the story of Genesis. When when he comes face to face with his brothers, he says, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. The Ninevites meant evil against the people of God, but God used it to accomplish good, namely the good of displaying his great and mighty power and delivering his people and giving them a foretaste of the victory that comes in eternal redemption. The Lord promises to break the the yoke bar uh, of slavery that the Assyrians are pressing down on God's people, as they were so mightily oppressive, the Lord promises that he will break that, and that points us to the work of Christ. So our consideration then for today, as we, 
as we want to consider this in light of redemption his, redemptive history, is that with the enslaving yoke of sin broken by Christ, the lives of God's people must reflect this conquering victory over sin. When Christ breaks the bonds of sin, we must live as those who are able to conquer sin because we are alive in him. We are free from sin's power. We are given new life in Christ. His spirit comes to live in us and dwell with us. He empowers us to walk in righteousness. That is an overwhelmingly conquering victory. And it's yours in Christ. We always want to be careful that we don't over-realize the Christological pictures of the Old Testament. But we also want to be careful to realize that Christ is the central figure of Scripture. All of Scripture culminates in the redemptive work of Christ. And so all of Scripture, in some way, form, or fashion, points us to the redemptive work. Of Christ. So we'll consider this text in, in three phases, working through firstly in verses 9 through 11 to see the schemers thwarted. The schemers thwarted. Verse 9 says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns, and those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed, a stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So we see in this, this evil plotting against the Lord and his people. And those who participate, participate in that plot, their end will be destruction. So we see the, the complete and utter response of God, the fullness of his response against these. We see some pictures of, of what this devastation Will be, and then we see kind of a pointed descriptor in verse 11 about the king of Assyria who so blatantly stood against the Lord. Verse 9 is this full picture of God's response to Nineveh, to Assyria, to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. So this story can be found in 2 Kings 18 and 19. 2 Kings 18 verse 13 says that the king of Assyria came up against the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. This king, he was like most of the rulers in the day. He was effectively a warlord. He, he went about seeking to conquer whatever was around him so that he could grow his power and authority, and all would have to bow to him and his authority. This is like the picture that we see in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's what's going on here. The king of Assyria is taking his stand. He is taking counsel together and standing against the Lord and his anointed. And friends, what we have to understand is that the world will take that stand against those who are in Christ simply because we are in Christ. If you don't believe me, look around and see what's going on in so-called Pride Month. 
It's the wicked of the world taking a stand against those who would stand upon the truth of Scripture and call sin, sin. The, the world hates Christians because darkness hates light. And so this king of Assyria is standing and taking a stand against the people of God simply because they are the people of God. You know, the, the Lord's response in Psalm 2 is, is very similar to his response in Nahum 1, verse 9. In Psalm 2, it says that the Lord laughs and he scoffs at the uprising of men. He says that he has established his king and he has a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. Nahum 1, verse 9, he says, he will make a complete end of these plots and plans. This is what we must realize. The schemes and the plots of men against the Lord will fail. Now, at times, they may succeed from our temporal view where we can only see such a short term. We don't see the Lord's eternal view, his eternal plan. And so we might think that evil is, is progressing and succeeding and winning, but the plots and plans and schemes of men will fail and they will fail utterly, and they will fail completely. The Lord's plan may not always look like we may have envisioned it, how we may think it ought to look, but we know the end. Christ is victorious. And dear church, that is a message that we must proclaim. You see so many evangelicals today who proclaim this gospel that is almost like a losing gospel. We're just kind of throwing out crumbs, hoping that somebody might pick them up. No, we proclaim Christ boldly as the king who reigns, who is the Savior. Proclaim a Christ who wins in the end because that is the Christ of the Bible. You don't try to win the world with philosophy you show them a great and glorious king and savior and call them to repentance. And then you let the Lord do the work that only he can do. We ought to take great comfort at the end of verse 9. Distress will not rise up twice. The enemy, once defeated, is defeated eternally. The Lord is promising that Assyria will not rise back up to again oppress his people. And if we were to apply this idea to redemptive history, we know that Satan has been defeated, that he is under the Lord's control. And one day, Jesus, the king of kings, will send him to hell for all eternity. The distress, the oppression of sin will never rise up again. In that story in 2 Kings 18 and 19, in 2 Kings 19, verse 34, the Lord declares, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. The Lord will rise up and defeat his enemy for his name and for his purpose. And if that's the Lord's plan, do you not believe that he is powerful to keep that enemy squished down to nothing? Greater than the Lord's victory over a human army, dear friend, is his victory over sin and death. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see this great victory over this massive, mighty army. And dear friend, that pales in comparison to the victory Jesus Christ has won at the cross over sin and death. Hebrews 2.14 says about Christ's work at the cross, he says that through death Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Do you consider that at the cross Christ rendered Satan powerless, utterly, completely powerless, When Christ was on the cross and he declared it is finished, it means it is finished. Satan has no power. He has no dominion. He's the prince of the power of the air, certainly. But Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has all power, all dominion. To him belongs all glory forever and ever. That is the king whom you serve. Greatest enemy, Satan, has been defeated for all eternity. Distress will not rise up twice. Nahum continues, he says, like tangled thorn, this is like a, an illustration showing us the picture of what the Lord is going to do. Like tangled thorns and those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. This is such a, a vivid and, and helpful picture, I think, to to just help us visualize how extremely the Lord will do this work. He says that the wicked are like tangled thorns. If you've ever dealt with a a tangled up thorn bush, you know the only way to defeat that thorn bush ultimately, unless you want to, to put your body on the line, is to light a match to it. Burn it. It will burn and it will disintegrate into ashes. Like that the evil will be burned. Calvin commented here just illustrating how strongly the Lord is speaking. He says, however thorny you may be, however full of poison, full of fury, full of wickedness, full of frauds, full of cruelty you may be, still the Lord can with one fire consume you. And Calvin concludes, he will consume you without any difficulty. If you land on the side of eternity of being apart from Christ and being one of these who is a wicked counselor who dies apart from the grace of Christ, those words are directed at you. You're one who will be consumed without any difficulty. But on the flip side of that, dear friend, do you realize how free the grace of God is? If you confess your sins, what does John tell us? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How faithful the Lord is to forgive repentant sinners. He will exercise utter wrath on those who die apart from Christ. But he gives free grace to those who flee from sin and flee to the mighty refuge of Christ. The wicked are not only like thorns, but they're also like those who are drunken with their drink. They're inebriated, they're foolish, they're unreasoning, they are 
unaware of the dangers surrounding them. They are like stubble that is completely withered. We know from Scripture that the pictures of stubble is that it's gathered up and it's cast into the fire and it's burned. John 15, verses 5 and 6, Jesus Christ there as a man says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So this is the two pictures. You abide in Christ and you bear much fruit. Or you do not abide in Christ and you're like the thorn bush. You're like the straw stubble. You're like the branch that doesn't bear fruit. You're cut off. You're thrown away. You're gathered up and cast into the fire to be burned. So do you abide in Christ? Does your life bear the fruit of repentance? Say that again. Ponder that for just a moment. Does your life bear the fruit of repentance? What is the fruit of repentance? It's, it's a changed life. It's not running back to the same sin over and over and over. Now, that doesn't mean that you repent of a sin and, and immediately you will be ensured that you never go back to it. But your heart and your life and your desires are changed. Are you one who repents because you abide in Christ? Or do you hard-heartedly remain in your sin? So they're cut off. They're consumed. They're burned, and then verse 11, we see kind of a further picture of the king of Syria. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. The king of Assyria acted with complete disregard to the Lord and the Lord's people. And while we could focus in and talk about the king, let's think about that idea of acting with disregard. Let's think about that in light of our own lives. So, so the king disregarded that these were the Lord's people and that he was clearly commanded not to oppress anyone, much less the Lord's people. How often do we disregard the Lord in our choices, in our conversations, in the things that we devote our time to? It doesn't just have to be disregard in taking an aggressive action against another person or a people group like we see in this picture but how often do you just go and act without a second thought to the glory and the plans and the purposes of God? How often do we fail to pursue the Lord with the devotion and the zeal that Scripture clearly calls for? Dear friend, it's, it's a dangerous road that you walk. If you don't walk devotedly, passionately, zealously for the glory of God. So not only did, did the king act with disregard, but Nahum says that he was a wicked counselor. A wicked counselor. Proverbs 2 speaks about this type of wickedness, describing those who delight in doing evil 
and who rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. Dear friends, that's the world as a whole in our day. They rejoice in evil. They walk a crooked path, and they're devious and deceitful and wicked in all their ways. And our duty is to stand up against that wickedness. It's to live lives that are an offense to those who practice sin because they are offended by the truth. They are offended by righteousness. The church who stands firm is the church who rejects falsehood and who loves and lives the truth. If you want to stand firm in this wicked world, you must love the truth. You must live the truth, and you must willingly and boldly reject falsehood. You must, in some form, in some way, make war against the evil of our day. It's just so rampant. I saw this morning that, that there were pictures of the president with his um, LGBTQ flag flying, I think it was maybe over the White House or, or somewhere else, and it's just the rampant wickedness of the world. And we as individuals and we as a church well, must stand. We must reject falsehood and we must speak against it. We must identify it as sinful. We must be bold in that because the world will continue headlong into this sin. We must be fixed to the word and we must know the one who is the anchor for our souls, the one, Jesus Christ. So the schemers are thwarted, and then we see that the shackles are broken. Verses 12 and 13, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. Think about the strength of this oppressor before the Lord acts. Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and they will pass away. The army of Assyria in this day, they had very few challengers. They were the empire of the day. No one could stand against the strength of this king and his army. So too is Satan really the reigning evil empire of this day. Now we know he's in submission to the Lord, but he is the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan has a vast and numerous and great army. His, his influence is very broad. But the Lord does to Satan... Exactly as he says he will do to the Assyrian army. They will be cut off and they will pass away. Assyria's conquest against Judah failed only by a miraculous work of the Lord. It's the Lord coming and slaying a large portion, maybe all of their army in the course of one night that then led the king to return himself to Nineveh. It's this physical relief, this 
physical salvation where we see the Lord's hand at work. This is why David cried out in Psalm 124, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. But it was the Lord who was on their side. And they were not swallowed up alive. They were victorious. Apply that to salvation of your soul. Apply that to redemption. It's the same God. It is Yahweh, the great I am, who is on the side of his elect. And you will not be overcome by the evil one. It's the same God who will deliver us from the path of eternal destruction. Dear friend, take heart, take courage, and stand firmly against the evil of our day. The next statement in verse 12 is is interesting, and and it ought to pique our interest a little bit. Though I have afflicted you, the Lord says, I will afflict you no longer. So effectively, the Lord says, this oppression is because of your sin. The Lord is afflicting his people because they had obviously walked into some type of sin, which was so common to the Lord's people, Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. The Lord would bring a reproving discipline upon them. And the Lord says, though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So think about the picture here. Assyria is facing this defeat. This punishment that is final and fatal. They'll be wiped off the face of the earth. But Judah, the Lord's people, are facing a punishment that is going to be brought to its end because the Lord's intended purposes have been fulfilled. Proverbs 3.12 tells us that the one that the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Isn't that a comforting thought? That the Lord, if you are his child, and if indeed then he does love you, he corrects you, he reproves you, he doesn't let you stray off the narrow path back onto the broad path that leads to the gate of destruction. No, he will correct and he will bring you back to center. It may be difficult. You may suffer greatly because of sin. But the Lord reproves the one that he loves. Dear friend, take hope because there comes a day when all sin will be defeated. What a glorious day that will be. When sin is over. Where Satan is cast to hell for all eternity. And we see Christ for who he is because we are like him. We're made to be perfectly righteous. Rejoice in that day and work toward that day. One thing that you can do as a parent to work toward that day is to show and to teach your children the loving and corrective discipline that the Lord shows us. If you have a child who grows to adulthood and doesn't understand the loving, corrective discipline of the Lord, you have failed them and they are farther from coming to the Lord than they would be if you properly parented them. Because the Lord reproves the child that he loves. And if you love your children, you will correct and discipline and reprove them. You will show them the love that God will surely show. So I have afflicted you. I will afflict you no longer. 
This ought to also remind us that every affliction comes from the Lord's hand. Whether affliction due to sin or affliction due to any other reason and purpose and work of the Lord, it's all from his hand. And he will always bring it to completion at the appropriate, proper time. No trial, no hardship, no tribulation comes except for passing through the providential hand of God. Take heart in that, saint. Because the afflictions and the trials and tribulations of life can be so difficult. But you must always hold to the hope that before it ever came to you, it passed through the Lord's hand because he's got a purpose in it. He's got a reason. He's going to glorify himself, and he's going to sanctify you as his child. There's great hope in tribulation. The Lord continues, verse 13, So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. This is the ultimate promise of freedom. And surely you can see exactly what the Lord is intending to do for his people Judah. He is going to free them from the oppressive power of this Assyrian empire. So let's go straight to thinking about that in light of redemption. Galatians 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was to free you from the power of and the bondage, and the guilt of the law. Christ didn't set you free from obeying the moral law. He set you free from the dominion of sin and the condemning power of the law. He set you free, as MacArthur always says, so that you could obey. Christ sets you free from the oppression of sin so that you can live out the desires of your new heart. Dear friend, that's a new heart that's alive in Christ. It's a new heart that desires to please and obey Him. That is why we follow after the desires of our heart, not because we pursue the lusts of the flesh, but because we're alive in Christ. Pursue that freedom. Romans 6 verse 7 says, Our old self was crucified with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If you died in Christ, if you've been made alive together with him in his resurrection, you are free from the power of sin. And that means that our duty is to live indeed as those who are free from sin. It means that you are increasing progressively in holiness. You are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect, but it means that you will sin less and less and look more and more like Christ. Think about the picture again here of, of Judah and the people of God being free from the oppressive slavery of the Assyrians. That is what we are to sin and Satan in Christ. We must live as though the shackles and bonds of sin are broken. So we've seen the schemers thwarted, the shackles broken, and now let's just consider briefly the Savior's conquest. 
the Savior's conquest, verses 14 and 15. The Lord has issued a command concerning you, speaking again to Nineveh. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So now you see this picture here of Nineveh, the idol-worshiping pagan people. And the Lord says, you will be cut off. Now we remember that Nineveh, again, we discussed this a couple weeks ago, this was a people who just a couple generations prior to Nahum's prophecy had experienced a national repentance. And so while they obviously did not worship the true God, you have to think that this caused a little fear, a little trepidation to hear this declaration from the one who just a hundred years before they had turned to. The Lord says they are contemptible. They're insolent. They're insignificant. They're hard-hearted. They deserve to have their memories cast as far as the east is to the west. And that is what the Lord says he will do. I have prepared your grave and you will be destroyed. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What about the hope? Verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, celebrate your feast, pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That is the message of good news. That is the one who announces peace, the one who announces the salvation from the Lord God in Jesus Christ alone. But do you notice in that declaration, especially in Isaiah 52, 7, that we also have this component of good news that God reigns eternally providentially and faithfully. This ought to be our primary message as the people of God. God reigns and Jesus saves. We can't lose that first component. You know, that's one thing that people are so prone to do. They want to go straight to Jesus saves. But what about this message of good news that God reigns? He is the king. This is his world. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So what is our response then to that good news? What is our response to this salvation? The Lord tells us, celebrate your feast, O Judah, and pay your vows. Celebrate your feast and pay your vows. You say, okay, so what does that have to do with us? Leviticus chapter 23 it talks about these feasts that were set apart as times of worship and celebration. So, dear saint, when we, as New Covenant believers, celebrate our feast, what we're called to do, our first response to God's deliverance is true, God-commanded, God-ordained, 
God-instructed worship. That's what these feasts were. It was a time of worship. Think about the history of Old Testament Israel and Judah, the Lord's people. In that day, their history was about polluted worship. They always were falling back to pagan practices in worship. And so what is the Lord's first command to them when he promises and tells of their deliverance? He says, you must worship. You worship truly, rightly, and biblically. But he doesn't stop there. He says, celebrate your feast, O Judah, and pay your vows. Again, in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 23 shows that these vows would have been various sacrifices and offerings. It was burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings. So to pay your vow is to, to give these offerings and sacrifices. But what does Psalm 51 say? What does King David says? He said, it's not sacrifices that Lord requires. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So the Lord commands Two responses. The culmination of God's saving work is the worship of his church and the pure, broken spirit of his people. When you think about God's deliverance, those are the two responses at which we must aim. The worship of the church and the pure, broken spirit of his people. You're in Christ, the enemy has been cut off forever. Death and sin no longer reign because Christ reigns, because Christ lives. Your response must be true worship and devotional obedience. How beautiful is the good news of this gospel message that you come to Christ in faith and repentance and you will be saved. How beautiful is the proper response to this gospel message. That you live a life of devoted obedience and worship to the one to whom all worship is due. By the grace of God and by this power of his Holy Spirit who lives in every believer, we must pursue this. We must stand with Christ as victors. We must live lives of devoted obedience to him. We must, as the Lord told his people, celebrate our feast, be devoted to worship, and we must pay our vows. We must come to him with pure hearts, broken spirits, in repentance, and ready to live a life that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to him. Let's live as those who walk in the conquering work of Christ, all to the praise and glory of his name. Let's pray.